welcome back. I'm so glad that you're here and I hope that you're having an amazing week. I wanted to give you some of the highlights from this conversation that I had with Tori Svoboda today because we covered so much ground. We talked about so many different topics and Tori kept it real and authentic and that was something that I know many of you have asked of the guests to just have a conversation from the heart um, and not to edit it and not to censor yourself um, as a guest on the episodes and that people want to hear your true story, your real authentic experience. And so I truly believe that's what Tori brought today. And I hope that you appreciate some of the vulnerability that she demonstrated as she shared stories that many of us in higher education fear sharing because we'll be outcast or marked and stigmatized for various reasons. And so I I hope that you get a lot out of this episode. Some of the resonant themes that Tori shared was her experience of speaking her mind and biting her tongue and the spectrum on which that exists within different contexts and different environments and different roles as an administrator, as a faculty. Um, So I hope that that resonates with you as well. She also speaks to many of her social and personal identities and shares insights and experiences as someone who was the first in her family to go to college, to get various degrees, um, to navigate these different professional career opportunities, and that she continues to be the first in many regards and what that's like when we're occupying all these different worlds in which our family, our friends, our communities, our colleagues, etc. They they embody these different environments, these different ecosystems of which we are members and how do we navigate that when they may seemingly be growing vastly apart, if that's a way that I might synthesize that. I encouraged Tori to, you know, give us the the raw vulnerable stories and I hope that that is um, what resonates with you. There are curse words in this episode, which I think in previous episodes has not been something that guests for whatever reason have shared. So if you're in the car or in hearing distance of little ones that you don't want to hear these particular words on this particular day, feel free to bookmark this episode and return to it because I chose not to edit them out. I wanted to keep Tori's, I wanted to match Tori's integrity and vulnerability with the justice done in the editing process. And so I chose to keep those in. I look forward to connecting with you. Please email me if you have questions. Connect with me, Sabby at resilientcampus.com. And I look forward to connecting with you in person or virtually very soon. Welcome to the Resilient Campus Podcast, amplifying the voices of college inclusion innovators. I'm your host, Sabby Labor, founder and CEO of Resilient Campus. Join me each week as I interview professionals on the front lines of campus and community movement building. For more information, please visit resilientcampus.com forward slash podcast. This is episode number 30 of the Resilient Campus podcast. Today we're speaking with Tori Svoboda, a formerly low-income and still first-generation student, staff, and faculty person. Tori worked in student affairs for 20 years before changing lanes to full-time faculty life five years ago. Tori now directs the master's program and teaches in the doctoral program in student affairs administration and higher education at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. Tori has a chapter coming out in the book, Social Class in the Academy, edited by Becky Martinez and Sanja Ardwin, entitled, I Could Always Go Back to Being a Bartender, Musings of an Ambivalent Academic. If you meet Tori, ask about her family, including Stella, Hannah, and Millie, the three dogs who rule the roost. Tori, thanks so much for being with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Savvy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So what listeners don't know is Tori and I just worked through a plethora of technical issues <laughs> and we persevered. We are resilient. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Cool. So Tori, you and I have known each other for a few years now. I can't remember our first meeting, but I'm so glad that you're in my life. You're in my network. Um, I know that you mentor a lot of folks that uh, I that we have in common, so... But what do you want people to know that are listening in today that may not know all these amazing things about you? Oh, that's nice of you to say. Um, And the feeling is mutual. I love that you are in my network. I'm so honored and humbled and a little intimidated by your awesomeness. So thank you for letting me join you. Um, I think the parts of my life that people may not know are that I um, am a former foster kid. I'm adopted. Um, 
I come from a very, very, very blended family with uh, two moms, four dads, and seven siblings, only a third of whom are still walking this planet. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that I'm kind of an open book. I, at least I hope so. People tell me that, and that often has gotten me in trouble, but um, we'll see where it takes us today, I suppose, right? Yes, I love that. And um, Tori, which identities feel most prominent mm-hmm. or salient for you today? Yeah, so I don't know if um, we said this in the intro, but um, my pronouns are she and hers. Um, the identities that are salient for me tend to be the ones where I'm rubbing up against some form of um, hardship. So I try to make sure that um, where that's not happening, I pay as much attention and make those identities as salient as the ones where they are, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, my gender uh, as a cisgender woman is very uh, prevalent for me today, especially as we were talking about gender differences in the tenure and promotion process and the ways in which um, folks who are not cisgender men are penalized by the current system. Um, I would say my ability is very prevalent for me today. I'm somebody who um, lives with severe anxiety and major depressive disorder, uh, sometimes managed better than other times. Um, I also have a neurological disability and a physical one, but I think um, that's a good example of how my what people see about my identities is not necessarily the fullness of them. So I'm white passing, but also um, biracial. My biological family is native and um, white, but I was raised white and I'm received by most of the world that way. Sexual orientation, I'm bi and I'm married to a man. Um, so benefit extraordinarily from heterosexual privilege. And that's not the whole story. And I share that not because I want to be like, I'm not like the rest of those white people or heterosexual people. I mean, I really feel like my work is about connecting with folks who share the dominant identities I hold so that we can show up differently than we have them, um, as well as supporting those who have shared marginalized or minoritized identities, if that makes sense. I guess the biggest one for me um, in terms of salient identities right now is, is the family role as the eldest living daughter with all of those um, biological and adoptive families Um, I feel a great deal of responsibility now for caring for ailing parents, which is um, a real challenge for me. And I think my role as adoptee is very present for me now, too, which is so different today than it was back in the day. You know, one of my one of my family members gave up a daughter for adoption and I'm Facebook friends with the adoptive mother um, now. So I've been able to see her. Um, as she grows. And I think if I ran into her in the supermarket, which is a possibility because we live in the same area, I might run up and hug her, uh, even though she doesn't know who I am, which gives me a little bit of um, compassion for what happened when I first met my biological family. And they were like, the baby. And I'm like, who are you? Get off of me. So I guess those are a few that are present for me now. Thank you. And and even noticing how they change over the lifespan, right, is mm-hmm. and with context and potentially changing from all the different even geographic and physical space locations mm-hmm. that you navigate as we got on this call you were yeah. like yeah I'm in three different places um in a given 24 to 48 hour period teaching and doing your mm-hmm. thing um and so we talked a little bit about the work that you're doing today with the chapter that you have coming out and um, some of your research interests what's at the top of your mind in terms of the issues and the topics and those initiatives that you're pushing forward today, what, what's that work look like for you that you're trying to move forward? Yeah. And I'm, it, this is kind of like practice for my tenure and promotion meeting. That's going to be happening next month, right? Where I have to figure out how to say that in six words or less. And I don't know that I've got that down yet. I mean, I, I guess I would say that um, a, a list of things that are on my mind. Um, number one, we've been, I've, I've been trying to play a part in reducing inequitable outcomes in higher education for over 30 years now. And and I don't know that we've made as many gains as I had hoped we would. So I'm trying to deal with um, cultivating some optimism um, when I know there are things that can point to the arc of justice being long and things will get better, but that's hard to sustain when I feel like every few years I buy into the latest, greatest, newest, like here's the solution. You know, it's inclusive excellence, it's the equity scorecard, it's um, campus, culturally engaging campus environments, it's this latest program policy uh, mentoring initiative. And yet, um, we haven't seen gains, especially around race, ethnicity and income. And that kind of disappoints me. Um, So I don't want to come across as a pessimist. And yet, I am one. (laughs) 
And I think there are additional manifestations of equity that don't get talked about as much in higher ed student affairs as I wish they would, many of which have to do with social class. And a lot of it has to do with interrogating our practices to see how we're contributing to the problem rather than transforming it. So I spent a lot of time talking with um, practitioner colleagues, and I did this when I was a practitioner too, about you know, the, well, it's always been this done, it's been done this way, or this is a great program initiative. I'm spending a lot of time trying to help folks kind of step back from that to say, really, how do we know that? How do we define success? How do we, um, you know, be as critical about the work that we do as we can be about what everybody else is doing? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, uh, I have certainly participated in judging everyone and their mother for, Um, what I perceive to be their level of wokeness and how they show up in a space. Um, I'm less good at saying, oh my gosh, I do things that still contribute to inequity. So maybe if I started there, um, that's maybe going to get us farther than if I just judge other people for what they are or are not doing. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. And I, I can't help but think about also how we might be more inclined to confront more readily or more assertively Mm -hmm. or more directly in, in different regions of even the U S like in the Midwest, Mm. we need people around us to hold us accountable. Right. Like I say, Tori, you know, our, that practice that you just did, that's very class driven. Let's talk about it and calling Mm -hmm. people into that conversation um, as opposed to the passive aggressive nature or the indirect communication and that that gets very challenging, even if it happens here in this region, whereas on our coasts, yeah. we might be more readily able to say, hey, I'm your colleague and I noticed this thing. Let's talk about it and calling people in right. to interrogate those. Yeah, and there is. I, you're so right on. I mean, I've not lived on the coast, so I don't know what that experience is like, but it has certainly been my experience that what I perceive as calling in and a gentle invitation to connect others perceive as outright attack. I mean, I remember when I moved from working at UW Madison um, and, and being part of what I thought was a fairly progressive community, moving to a new place. And all of a sudden people were like, you're way too abrasive. You're problematic. I'm like, what? My zip code changed, but what is happening here? I didn't get it. And over time really had to soften my voice at my new institution Um, which meant biting my tongue so often that I was drowning in the blood of it all. You know, it's just like, oof, the amount of tone policing we do of one another, especially women um, and non-binary and trans folk of all genders. In other words, not cisgender men. (laughs) It's, uh, it's extraordinary. And yeah, we were just having a conversation today about that with our, those who supervise the graduate students in our on-campus master's program how when somebody says, I feel attacked, um, on the one hand, I want to validate that the impact of somebody being like taken aback and harmed by something another has said, whether or not that was intentional. And also what I notice is that it's often folks from privileged and dominant identities who, who are like, I'm attacked. It's like, no, that, you, you know, what's the phrase? Like, um, when you're privileged, uh, discomfort feels like oppression. When it's merely discomfort, you can sit with that a little while, you know? And that to me is different than, you know, talking to somebody who says uh, this racial slur was used in my work environment or this homophobic incident occurred in my hall or there's not um, a restroom I can use in the building where class is held. Like to me, that's not somebody's fragility showing up. That's like you have a right to be treated in a humane fashion. Absolutely. Um, that's different than uh, I said something, somebody called me in kindly and gently in my estimation. I don't know. It's like I, I had the opportunity to take a healing from toxic whiteness course last year through Sandra Kim, compassionate activism, love um, the work that happened there. And I'm a big follower of um, Robin D'Angelo and her newest book on white fragility came out. And I do think, Man, those of us who are white, we sure have a way of recentering conversations on our comfort and expecting other folks to soothe our egos, whether we're the wokest person in the room or not yet there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could go on, but <laughs> Well, you hit on some uh, some things that have been resonating 
with me recently in the work that people have been asking me to come to their campuses and help facilitate dialogue around uh-huh. is this idea of discomfort versus, you know, being unsafe and, and, you know, really noticing how our dominant and minoritized identities may lead us sort of into uh, mm-hmm. traps sometimes that make us assume that we're not safe because we're being called on our privilege, but in fact, mm-hmm. we're just uncomfortable. But because yeah. as adult learners, particularly adult learners, people that are in professional staff and faculty roles, we're so uncomfortable with not having the answer, with messing up, that yeah. it becomes harder and harder to recover from 100. fumbling and failing. And right. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, and being human and being human. Yeah. And, and so I think that's the piece where the, I think to myself, if I have colleagues around me that aren't holding me accountable, then I think that's what I worry day in and day out as I, you know, just turned 35 and I'm like sort of making my way on the earth. Um, mm-hmm. and over time, I think, if I don't have people around me that hold me accountable and that call me into these conversations, I think that would be the biggest loss for me and the biggest regret. Oh my gosh. Yes. I would be so, I would be so upset and disappointed and feel like I failed in sort of building a network of friends and family and colleagues who we can actually talk about these things, um, and not agree. And it's, that's okay. Um, so I don't know. I, I do, it, it it's easier than it sounds to decipher yeah. between discomfort and feeling unsafe. And mm-hmm. our conversations on campus right now around gender pronouns are exactly the same thing that you're saying around privilege. Like the attention is now on the comfort and the, the academic freedom of those who are privileged, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and, and what about our students who are trans and GNC traveling our campuses mm-hmm. and our queer students who, who think about their pronouns yeah. all the time? It's like, but we're d- redirecting our attention from them and their feeling of thriving and being celebrated That's and right. belonging on campus. And it's, it's it's a real slippery tool that's being used yes. here. It's a real slippery slope. Um, but yeah, so I I definitely appreciate that you're bringing that up because I uh, it's coming up on multiple campuses that I'm even in, involved in. Well, and I think there you know, um, having spent a few more turns on the around the earth, you know, I've seen this pattern and have participated in it. Not realizing I was colluding with this pattern of something starts as a way to transform an exclusive space and make it more inclusive, but quickly then becomes adopted by those who would maintain the status quo in their service, right? This is what critical race theory is telling us that uh, if you think you're making progress, watch out because it will be taken in, co-opted, transformed into something else. So my, so I, yes, I hear you on that because my worry on our campus is that the, there are a lot of folks who talk about PGPs and some who still say preferred gender pronoun. And then they now realize like, it's not a preference. So they'll say personal gender pronoun. And I'm like, okay, first of all, enough with the acronyms. Don't say to a new student, what are your PGPs? Well, I don't know what that means. Well, now I've just made you feel like an idiot. So let me kind of tout my superiority, right? Can you just say what, uh, I use she, her pronouns. Are there pronouns you'd like me to use? Yeah, enough with the PGP, not because I don't want people to name them, but because I feel like it gets used as a performance by cisgender folks to to be like, I'm woke, you know, I'm always going to say she, her, because it costs me nothing to say that. Mm. In fact, it um, it is a performance to make me seem like I'm a little bit better than the, and a little bit less transphobic or um, sexist or Lord knows all of the other act, assumptions people can make about somebody who doesn't start with that, right? Mm-hmm. I very much want folks to be acknowledged for who they are as they want to be acknowledged, period. And it makes me nervous when it becomes less about, as you said, what are the needs of these trans GNC students uh, and how are they being displaced by the need of the cisgender folks to perform their allyship? Yeah. And, and I even want to break down when I say GNC, I'm referring to gender nonconforming, right? So yeah. that's something that even oh. I cognitively yeah. shortcutted. And 
I had this moment, Tori, I went to, I spoke to two incoming classes of first year students and that was really cool. Two different campuses, but both I was helping to facilitate a dialogue around their social identities. And some of the, the questions that I think that we have proceeded to move forward at sort of lightning speed in terms of talking about racism and sexism and transphobia and, you know, all the isms and the ways oppression manifests. We we have failed to bring people along in terms of what is race, what is ethnicity, what is gender, oh sex, sexual mm-hmm. orientation, gender expression, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I was pulling together, um, we had a great question come up from one of the students who was leading our discussion on that campus and they said, well, well, how are you defining race and how are you defining ethnicity and are they the same? And can I get some help with the, the kind of one-on-one language before we move right. on to talk? And when yeah. I had to go look for it, it was nowhere to be found in one place mm-hmm. where we're defining what we mean by all these different social identities. Yeah. And I just had this epiphany, like, I've been disregarding people a little bit when they say, I don't know what you're talking about. You're speaking all that jargon and mm-hmm. kind of telling us we didn't bring them along. And I'm like, no, you you know, you should be here. <laughs> You've been living under a rock. And yeah, there's so much did. judgment. We right? left them behind. Yeah, yeah, there is. And I fall into it and I am not proud of it. And when I went to go find those definitions, one, there's definitions all across the board of what That's each right. of these are. So if you have someone that takes Google, you know, search as like the number one truth, (laughs) (laughs) they could stumble onto some set of identity based definitions that have no relevance to like the context of what we're speaking to. So I didn't mean to take up that much time. I guess I'm just thinking about how we do leave people behind with language. And if we actually truly listen to their concern about, you know, you you left me behind. How are you defining this? Sometimes we take that as oh my God, we're defining diversity or we're defining inclusion yeah. again before we can do the work. And it's like, there's something there, although I don't think it should take the two hours that you set aside for the, the yeah. true work, but maybe paying attention to that as the precursor to allow the work to go on is building some sort of general definition or general common language that we can move forward. And I think that's true, certainly true around all of the identities you mentioned and it's another manifestation of social class and first gen status too, where even the word first gen, I didn't know I was first gen until I had been in a career 10 years. Like there just wasn't, if that language had been used, I would have been thinking about first generation, first generation immigrant, not first in your family to go to college. Like I didn't know that. Right. Um, so one of the, one of my platforms, if you will, now I feel like I'm running for Miss America or something. <laughs> One of my platforms would be, hey, student affairs folks, I love us. And and uh, we do. We speak in terms that none of my family would understand if we were at a family gathering like a sister's wedding or something, you know. Um, and I don't and I've heard people talk about how inaccessible some of our language is, but in a very um, patronizing way and talking about like, oh, I guess we have to dumb it down or we have to do these things it's like, you know, it's not a. I mean, sometimes it's a willful ignorance thing, and that is problematic. You know, if I have a colleague who's been doing this work with me for 30 years and they haven't heard what is gender, I mean, come on. You've had more than ample opportunity. Um, But for an 18-year-old, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe this is evident. I wasn't ever planning on going to college as a young person. I did it so I'd have a place to live um, because I was emancipated at 16, And I sure didn't think I'd be in college longer than just getting a piece of paper to get a job. Um, And so to be where I am now, I'm still like, what? This is all going to end tomorrow. It seems um, ridiculous to me. Uh, And, and I wish I could say, oh, that was true 20 years ago, but it's not true now. But the, the rampant elitism that happens between like the prestige associated with different schools and do you know the right language? And, oh my gosh, it's just, it's a little too much, you know? So I, I know that um, you had asked something later on about like, where do you find community? And I got to say, like the first time I went to an academic advising conference, people were talking about first-gen and low-income students, like we were just damaged goods. And um, it was so offensive to me and I couldn't figure out why nobody else in the room was offended. 
like, oh, because none of y'all are those things. And it's assumed we are all not first gen. Um, or first time I went to an ASH conference, um, people would look down at your name tag. And when I had a UW-Madison name tag on, people were like, oh, do you know so-and-so? But every name tag I've had since, it's been like, oh, you're not worth my time. I'm going to keep moving on. Um, and I've experienced that in every single student affairs organization I've been a part of, which is nearly every one of them, which doesn't mean that there aren't also some um, great things happening. I mean, ACPA's surge, uh, strategic imperative for racial justice and decolonization is so exciting. That's amazing work. Um, and yet there's still quite a bit of that, like, where did you go to school? Oh, you went to that program? Oh, you have an EDD instead of a PhD? Oh, you're from the Midwest instead of from the coast? There's a lot of, you know, I don't know, thumbing down at folks who are less than that we do to each other all the time. And that's a little harder, I think, to own. We're, we're in student affairs. My experience has been we're really quick to say, like, faculty treat us like shit. Well, we treat each other like shit. Like, how about we start with that, you know? I think it's one of those pieces of if people are open to being called into that conversation, then we can have it. Um, but we have so much ego as human beings, as adult human beings in the oh U.S. <laughs> that that yeah. becomes challenging. It does. And I think especially when, um, you know, if I were ambivalent about the how I showed up and you said you're you're causing harm, be like, Meh, you know, I could take it or leave it. But when I think I'm actually the solution and you're telling me that I'm the problem. That is hard because I have so much invested in, oh, what is it Anne Lamott says? Helping is the sunny side of control. Um, that we who join student affairs to help others can jump straight into like being saviors, being needed, you know, whether that's the person who is known for being the validator and affirming and opens their arms and lives on campus 24 seven. So is a really piss poor role model for what life work integration could be, but feels really good about themselves because they care and everybody knows they care. Or maybe they're the badass activist. Like I was like, you know, as an undergraduate student uh, participating in protests against the Dean of students. And then within a span of a few short years being on her cabinet and having her pat me on the head and say, look, who's grown up and become the man now? Like, Oh yeah. Ouch. <laughs> Um, yeah, I do. I feel like, oh, you're right. The ego is threatened because I came to do this work to help. And now you're telling me maybe it's not helpful. And I think it's that, that maybe is one of the things I've learned over time. I grew up, um, being taught to think in more binary terms, stuff is black or white. It's good or bad. It's useful or not useful. And, uh, I have since come to realize that most things are, uh, you know, there are multiple truths happening all at once. And, and so if I think I'm being helpful by sending out early alert notices to students who might be struggling in classes, that is one truth. And um, it is also true, perhaps, that I am perpetuating a cycle of putting under surveillance minoritized populations and pointing out every flaw um, that folks react to out of a cumulative impact oh my gosh, my sister would slap me in the face for what I just said. Like, could you just break that down into regular people terms is her response to me. So I, I did a um, research study here where we talked to um, folks who identify as students of color who got either um, positive early alert messages or negative early alert messages or no earlier alert messages and said, you know, what's your experience then? Because a lot of the administration here was saying, you know, early alerts, it's a high impact practice and advise it's we ought to, it's the latest trend, we're on board. Um, and what students said is uh, it didn't feel like a helping hand. The vast majority of students, especially um, as students got further in their educational career, said it's shaming. It's public shaming. And I got the message from five different offices that I'm a failure. Uh, and I knew that walking in, that you would see me and think that I'm going to be a failure. And that's exactly how you treated me. Like, ooh, <laughs> you're being successful here, not because of these early alerts, but in spite of them, because of the way they're done. Mm. And again, it's another example of that's something that um, at every campus I've worked at started as an initiative out of a multicultural student services office to do outreach to students of color, to celebrate successes and, and provide a safety net that then gets co-opted by the full institution and then becomes a um, like racial profiling of students who are transfer, low income, first gen, um, students of color, which by the way, that's not all the same group. If you couldn't figure that out that we talk often as if it were. Mm. Uh, 
Yeah. So practice that started as a really meaningful, good thing, I think, on a lot of campuses has transformed into another extension of educational control that actually doesn't help folks persist. But in this current environment where people don't want to hear stories, they just want numbers. It's like, look at that. Uh, I was at another private institution. Oh, we started this scholarship program and look at these amazing graduation rates. Uh Uh-huh. But did you see the campus climate survey? A person can persist and still not have a positive experience. So if your only definition is getting folks into the door, that's a problem. Or even if it's only getting them out of the door, you're missing the lived experience in between, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think about how early alert works when in the faculty environment and with my students I think about if I am in relationship with them ongoing and it's not some transactional, like I just grade your papers and show up to teach and like, you know, I'm the sage on the stage. If I'm building relationships with them, uh, I don't have as much of a need for an early alert as is used at other institutions as like, Mm -hmm. you know, realizing that students haven't shown up for a few classes, like you're in conversation with them so that, you know, when they, when they're not arriving and you should be concerned and you reach out to them first as opposed to right. like copying your advisor, copying this person, copying exactly. that person. It's like, wow, you just put all my business out there. And now I That's feel right. less inclined to tell you actually someone passed away in my family or yep. my parent lost their job and now they're on disability and can't, yep. you know, be the breadwinner um, in our household anymore. So it's, yeah, I think that there's something assumed about how, if you combine those faculty, those high impact practices of faculty student interaction, mm-hmm. right, and those increased numbers with something like an early alert, early alert just means we're kind of catching things before our academic calendar says we need to have a final grade right. for a student, right? It's like sometimes it's as simple as that, but we're trying to help be as relational as we can within these very rigid policy timelines. Yeah. And the relationship piece, I think, is what gets missed most, Um, particularly, you know, having been an administrator for most of my life, uh, although I have been an assistant professor for five years, uh, I feel like you have to let me do it for 30 years and then I'll tell you which one I like better, you know, but um, I'm shocked at how much I didn't know about what it would be like to be a faculty member. Like, I remember sitting in the new faculty orientation. I'm, you know, 20 years senior of everyone else in the room. And they're like, I am an expert on this really narrow uh, topic in English literature, but I don't know how to teach. I don't know how to advise. I don't know how to do any of this stuff. And now you're telling me the student feedback about advising is pretty low. I want to fix it, but I don't know how. And I'm trying to get publications, which matter more in tenure, even though you say you're teaching campus and blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh. This is really stressful and hard work for people. And the stuff that seems logical to me, like, you know, if Fred is missing class, I'm going to email or, or call Fred and be like, hey, we're, everything okay? Something going on that I can assist with? Because um, I took the time to get to know the person's first name. Like, it doesn't everybody do that as an instructor? No? Oh, my gosh. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Shocking to me. So I think that's been if the first part of my life as a student affairs administrator was about trying to figure out how can we change policies to create more equitable outcomes. Now I feel like my job is about how do I prepare student affairs practitioners to enter environments that are designed specifically to reproduce inequitable outcomes and, and create kind of um, more folks who are willing to be disruptors in that at the same time that I'm also practicing what I preach You know, so we were just doing a review of our um, bylaws that talk about what is scholarship. And um, I love that I'm in a department where, as an example, um, I had an article in NASPA's conference publication last spring about we do these things in advising that are problematic. Here's some ideas about how to do them better. Uh, And I got emails from colleagues at two research intensive institutions saying, this just got spread out to an advisor network of over 300 people. Cool. I I love that. I knew the author. I'm like, oh, that's so sweet. That's 600 people who saw that. Um, If I had it published in another academic journal, it would not reach 600 practitioners. It might reach one, knowing what we know about the readership there. So in our department, while the rest of the campus is saying um, the journal impact factor matters, the more selective, the better. 
we're saying, no, we are a practitioner-based program. And so if we can get scholarship into the hands of practitioners and reshape the way they're doing things, that actually matters far more than um, how many articles you published or where they were published, because there's no guarantee that producing that knowledge is going to result in any actionable um, practitioner change, you know, and that's what we're after is like, the point of the uh, degree in student affairs is not to get a credential so you can get a pay bump. It's to learn some of the skills to be resourceful and scholarly and innovative in your work um, and to keep doing that, not like cross the stage and then be like, peace out. I'm never reading another book again, you know? Right. So, and I know we've, we've talked about this has been a definite thread as we've been talking today, Tori, um, in terms of how you arrived to the work that you're doing today, what do you think was that, that driving force that brought you to either the particular role that you have or the particular passions and the, the topics and issues that you're pushing forward today. How, what do you think drove you to, to do the work that you're doing today? It's really interesting that you asked that question today of all days, because um, in uh, one of the classes that's being taught right now, another instructor asks students to reflect on that. What, did, what brought you here today? And um what sometimes happens is that becomes like a, well, I was an RA and a student body president and a this and this and this, and all these mentors told me I'd be perfect in student affairs, which leaves those of us who worked in like food service and um, other overnight work study jobs feeling like, oh, well, shit, I don't belong here. Um, and, and sometimes what brought us to the work is actually is really traumatic. And so, yeah, so, I mean, asking that question, what brought you here I don't know. I feel like the the right answer is supposed to be, oh, all of these wonderful mentors, mentors, and you know, yeah, yeah. No, it. it I think I got here um, because I saw a ton of violence in my home and was like, uh, uh-uh, I am not for this. I got to figure out how to make a, a different world. Um, and I, <laughs> this probably makes me seem really simple. But like the best way to motivate me is to tell me that I can't do something. So I also was like, oh, you, you don't think I'm smart? Let me, you know, get a perfect score on the GRE. F you. Um, third grade teacher who made me retake an honors test because she assumed that I cheated because we were from the poor white trash family in town. Or the early school days when ooh, I'm going to get emotional. I don't know where this emotion is coming from, but I'm going to be okay with that because it's real. I remember um, being in third grade and being told like, uh, that I'd never amount to anything from the teacher because I had sworn in class and that was a sign of a a stupid person because I didn't have a big enough vocabulary yet. In third grade, are you serious? Um, Or standing in a different lunch line because the free and reduced lunch kids were so greedy with the food, we needed to let the paying people go first and then we could have what was left. Um, It was very shaming. Or um, standing in in a, uh, being posed for a photo op to show that we were wearing the clothes that the other kids in the school had donated to make the churchgoers feel really good about that um, and being shamed or the fact that I wore the same dress in my school photos four years in a row because I hadn't grown because my parents were abusing alcohol and drugs. And um, I was, you know, not fed well, (laughs) like, and it's scary to say all of this stuff because it's not just my story. Right. I'm like, you want to talk about putting my secrets out on the street. This is really scary to kind of reveal stuff that I had been taught to keep secret. And yet I think if more of us don't um, start sharing those truths, it does become this weight that you keep dragging behind you. And I want my past to inform me, but I don't want it to um, control me in the same way, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't, I know that you've recently had Sanja on your um, podcast and she and I've had a lot of conversations about this, like, what happens when you're first and you, and you keep being first, you know, first to get the undergrad, first to get the master's, first to do this, first, first, first. A lot of people assume, oh, well then life is grand and you, and you're assimilated and all is good. It's like, um, I actually still go back to that home all the time. So it's not like I tried to escape. I mean, maybe when I was 15, I was about trying to escape. Now it's about trying to reconnect and stay grounded. Right. Uh, identity is not this, whatever the identity, it's not like a, this is the one thing and that's true for your lifetime. It can shift over time. And when you shift, you don't necessarily abandon what came before you. It's more like residue, you know, it's like, um, it's still part of your psyche. So I still do things 
uh, like every time the phone rings, I think it's a debt collector or somebody calling to tell me that one of my family members is dead from a drug overdose or somebody calling for bail money. Um, so I don't like phones all the time. Um, or when we're, um, when I've done my review meetings, I keep hearing, well, you need to brag on yourself more. Yeah, I'm not willing to do that. Sorry, your process ought to change to accommodate folks who are not all about setting up, you know, themselves as expert. That's not who I am. Yeah, that shit really gets under my skin. But then what, what tends to happen, because, because of the way that I physically present, people assume that I'm continuing generation, that I'm professional middle class, um, whatever, whatever. And <clears throat> then kind of when they find out, oh, that's not what my lived experience is, um, then I become like the object of um, pity or scorn. Like, oh, isn't it amazing that you survived all of that? Like, aren't you, don't you feel grateful to be here? Well, maybe I do, but I'm not going to perform that for you, asshole. So move over, right? Um, or the scorn is like, why do you have to keep bringing those things up? Um, because eventually you need to start doing that too, you know? It's like the, which one of these things is not like the other when they realize I'm not like the other necessarily, though I still am the other, like them and also the other. I don't know, it causes this discomfort that I've been able to navigate sometimes by being written up as subordinate and having to lose jobs, sometimes by biting my tongue um, because I felt like I needed to have the security of health insurance for my health issues or to provide for family members, even though I don't have kids. Um, and I think, you know, we all choose different strategies at different times in our lives that work for us in that moment, but don't have to be the one we go to for forever, if that makes sense. Um, so sometimes when I've said to people like, that shit is toxic. You need to leave. They're like, I can't leave. I got all these things. I'm like, yeah, I know I've been there and I've had to suffer through some things that I wish I didn't have to. But some of that was me feeling like, like I don't belong here and I should have to suffer that stuff. Like that's the price I should have to pay for being here. So I kind of adopt this like martyrdom piece of work that I'm not proud of, but it's still in me because it's all I know, you know, like I, I was talking to my sister about this the other night. Um, we were up in a working class community first bouncing from house to house to house uh, when my mom was still drinking and, and dating a drug dealer. So like no security at all. And then we moved to the country to try and escape some of that on a farm where you work when the sun comes up and you work till the sun goes down and that's how you get ahead. Right. So my first postmaster's advising job, I got to the office at six every morning. I stayed until eight or nine at night. I saw like double the students of everybody else. And I was work, 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 work. Um, and meanwhile, other people I went to grad school with are getting promoted left, right, and everywhere. I'm like, what is happening? The, the rules I got taught about like hard work is what gets you ahead. is not the environment I entered. Not like people who get ahead don't work hard. Of course they do. But they invest in the relationship. And I had not been taught that that was a value. I'd been taught that networking is like fake bullshit. And, you know, that's what people who don't have... Uh, who don't know how to work, just smooth each other. And it's a manipulation. It's not real. Um, so that's one of those kind of advising practices where I'm like, stop telling people to do networking. Um, for me, networking is a four letter word and it associates you with slime balls. But if you say to me, you need to invest in community building, I can get behind that. Right. So, um, I mean, that kind of circles back to some of those multiple truths. I think what's hard is when I say to folks, you know, and I did this. Why do we hire a really diverse orientation leader crew and then make them dress exactly the same and say exactly the same thing? Like, what? What? what is that about? I think what folks hear is like, you're saying I'm a horrible person. Like, no, no, I'm not. I'm just asking, like, even though we've been doing it that way, is that the best way? Do we know? Can it can some parts of it be useful and maybe other parts of it shift? Mm -hmm. I don't have the answer. I'm not. um I, when I was in my 20s, I thought I had the answer to everything. Now, I think something you said earlier about, like, we're human. We are going to fail. Yeah, I fail every day. Um, but that's not in my bio, is it? Like, Tori's an F up, um, which is problematic, I think, for our future profession, because people feel such, such extraordinary pressure to get it right always. Um, and especially if you feel a responsibility to make this place better, than it was perhaps for you. Uh, it's like, 
oh my gosh, we are so hard on ourselves. Um, and think, I, I remember talking to Kathy O'Bear about this once um, where I said, oh, you know, if I F up, you know, I'm, I'm so afraid of that. And she's like, that just makes you human. You know, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. I'm like, no, I really think I'm a bad person. Like you're, you're telling me that that's not true is not helpful to me in this moment. Uh, it is more than just my ego can't handle somebody calling me a racist. I am. I was raised racist. How could I be anything but? Uh, but I, I do think underneath it all, and this is where the adoptee comes in, and um, that I wasn't wanted, that I don't deserve to be here. There's so many messages about who deserves you know, yeah. to, to belong, who, who is, who is us and who is them, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that we participate in those, right. Those mechanisms. Like we allow those to perpetuate by saying, oh mm-hmm. yeah, what, what university or what college are you from? Okay. You're, you're worth this much of my time or not mm-hmm. at all. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that, Tori. And I, I do think that that truly is essential for, us to be highlighting and making visible in our field is that we, you know, our bios and and bios are strange manifestations, aren't they? I mean, I feel so uncomfortable with any bio that I have to put together um, and what we think is right or appropriate to put in a biography, right? Um, what's, what's too long, what's too short, what needs to be in there, what's important, what's not, um, about our, our personhood. And so I I appreciate that we've spent quite some time thinking about kind of what, what your pathway has been moving in this direction, what drives and inspires and motivates you to do the work that you're doing today. I know that one of the questions that, and they're big questions that I like Mm -hmm. to um, round out our conversation with is around guidance and insight that you would provide Mm -hmm. to others doing this work. Kind of, I I think of it as looking into the rear view mirror. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what are those, what are those lessons, those pieces of guidance that you would share with other folks that are doing this work that come from, from your heart, from your experience so far? I would say a couple of things. One lesson I've learned is that the work is more about being than doing. Um, I think a lot of us get caught up in how much we program or how many, what numbers can we produce around our events and um, meetings and blah, blah. Uh, And that's not really what matters at the end of the day. Like, because when we're so focused on the busyness of the work and participating in that awful game, like who stayed up later last night, who worked more more hours this week. I hate that. Can we please stop doing that in student affairs? It's not, it's not a good look. It's not cute. Um, And it feeds the wrong part of our egos, right. To say uh, this is, this is, it's hegemony or hegemony or however that's supposed to be pronounced. When, when, we, when we embrace, like, whoever's here the longest is the most committed to their work, we're basically saying, uh, I need to kill myself in order to have worth here. What? That's so sick. And yet we keep doing it. Anyway, um, so instead of thinking at, um, about, like, am I a valuable contributor to this community based on how much I teach or how many students I advise or whatever else, um, maybe I can say, am I acting in ways that are congruent with my values? to the best of my ability in the spaces I inhabit, right? So to those who are listening to this, who identify with more um, majoritized identities, you know, like to my, to my white family, do more, do better. Stop saying you're going to try to and just start making mistakes and get over yourself, right? I have to tell myself to get over myself every fucking day. Um, and to folks who are hurt, Um, because they're trying to navigate spaces that are about silencing them. Um, You know, self-care is radical if it is done so that you can survive another day, right? So find community. Um, I'm not a huge fan of like, it's funny that your work is called Resilient Campus because when I hear resilient, like you need to be more resilient. I'm like, F you, you don't know what I had to do to get here today. But the way you frame it, for me at least, is I am resilient. And so I'm going to do what I need to do. And 
that's what it is, right? So um, sometimes I have felt guilty when I don't speak up about every gender issue, but I'm tired. And so like folks who are uh, identify as male, could you please step up your game so I don't feel guilty for not saying something or get labeled a bitch for saying something? That would be real nice sometimes, you know? Um, so yeah, being and doing, being is doing is one. And I have to credit Becky Martinez with that. You know, I've heard a lot of your podcast guests talk about the importance of the social justice training Institute. And that was huge in my own life, huge. Um, and it's not just SJTI. It is Jamie Washington. It was Kathy O'Bear. It was Becky Martinez. It was Fernand Wall. Um, now Sam and Carmen and uh, like folks who are affiliated with that, I think, get that you use yourself as the instrument, that it's not about creating the best program or um, reshaping policy. It's about getting clear on the work you need to do to heal so that you can show up and assist others in their process. Uh, Yeah, so being is doing and um, embracing mistakes as just um, feedback about, you know, whoops, (laughs) not as a dismissive, like, my bad, Uh, more as a Oh shoot! Didn't I'm going to commit to not making that mistake again? Um, so I'm not saying people can be careless, but that like being paralyzed for the fear of people finding out the secret about you, whatever that secret is, you know that that um, that'll kill you. And I want you here to keep transforming these spaces, right? I love that you mentioned that being is doing because that has come up for me. I'm trying to retrace how many times that might be the fourth time in the past Mm -hmm. seven days that I've had conversations with people. That's a lot. It's definitely a theme that I talked to someone who we kind of veered into more of a spiritual conversation Mm -hmm. um, and talking about higher education and, but it's shown up with other folks in this space as well um, to, to be able to just, focus on how we can be in in a space in a role in a an environment around certain people and rather than being measured in our value and worth on how much we're doing or what we're doing yeah that like that i'm not enough oh my gosh i don't know a single person who doesn't carry that with them um constantly and i'm like if life were about who did the most tasks at the end of the day, wouldn't we get more done if we weren't carrying the psychic energy it takes to answer that question of, is this enough? Am I enough? Jeez. But um, somehow it gets hold in us and it's easier said than done to drop it. Especially when there are other people in the world saying, no, you're not, you're not enough. You don't deserve this to, to radically claim your space. That's, that's pretty, it's pretty special knowing that how much you can take up is a manifestation of all of these other systems we've been talking about. Um, Cause my bio might have said things like watches way too much Netflix or, um, and, and I uh, was trying to get caught up on orange is the new black. Oh my gosh. So much problematic there. So much otherness there. But um, when tasty says to, Oh, what's her name? I just so dislike Piper. Um, oh, you're used to people liking you. You're used to things going your way and that, and that hasn't happened for you. And oh, hmm, uh, welcome to this world. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I sometimes when I'm marching around saying, I want to wear jeans to work, I want to be able to swear because that's my, that's how I feel most comfortable. Like there are other folks who are just trying to be, um, to not get killed, literally. Uh, so I don't know, take some perspective, I guess, is the other thing. Like, um, I've had a lot of folks in my life who helped me realize that as much as I was trying to do a lot of gender activism, that I wasn't doing the necessary work around my race, ethnicity. Uh, so can we spend as much time healing our, um, the supremacy we learned as well as healing the oppression we learned, um, and focus more on what we're doing instead of just judging other folk. Thank you for sharing those those pieces of guidance. I know that that will resonate with people listening in um, because they, you know, echo sentiments of carrying those messages lifelong into our professional roles, into our personal lives that we mm-hmm. learned early on. And so I, I know that that will resonate with a lot of folks. Um, 
So I know that, uh, you know, you create some of the scholarship that people are reading that informs their approach to their work. Tell us about what some of those resources are that, that inform the way you approach your work. Um, are they, is it like core books or authors? Is it a, um, some podcasts? Like what, what comes to top of mind for you? I mean, when you had said that that would be, I mean, I, having been a fan of the podcast for a while, I knew that question would be coming. And, and often I think people start dropping author names. And if this were a, a master's level class and we're talking about your capstone project, I'd be like, why aren't you citing so-and-so? Um, and uh, I feel like a lot of them have been said. So like there, there's a new, um, new directions on student services about social class that came out this summer, co-edited by Becky Martin and Georgiana, or Georgiana Martin and Becky Elkins that I think is, pretty exciting. There's a, um, the book that I sent you the quote from difficult subjects teaching excellent book. Um, I can't wait to read the, uh, debunking the myth of job fit and student affairs from stylus that's supposed to come out this fall. Yay. Um, uh, yeah, there's, there's so many authors whom I have read. And yet what I remember as a practitioner is I rarely had time to consume scholarship in the field and it wasn't packaged in a way that was accessible to me. So I also want to make sure I don't become the doctor who only reads academic journals. Right. So this summer I read a lot of um, more autobiographical stuff like um, the mother of black Hollywood by Jennifer Lewis or Calypso by David Sedaris or educated by Tara or Tara, Tara Westover. Horrible with name pronunciation. And um, because I do travel between several UW system campuses, I listen to a lot of podcasts too. And yours is first among them, but Code Switch, um, Scholar T, uh, On Being. Um, I try to mix it up because I think if you'd asked me this maybe 15 years ago, I would have a very narrow answer. And I think that's another problem in student affairs is that if this is our work and all of our friends are also in this work, uh, we don't step outside of it to realize there's bigger conversations going on. Mm -hmm. So I like to talk to my friends about what's happening at a conversation at the farm where they are a migrant worker or a game farm employee or um, where they work on the marina docks or my sister works in a hospital like what's happening there so I don't get into this I still remember um, a family holiday gathering where I think my mom said so what's new in your life and I said oh I'm reading about feminist counter hegemonic uh, pedagogical like I had lost them when I said um the context of they're like context is a fancy word. Do you think we're going to listen to any of the rest of that nonsense? Um, so yes, I try to get sources outside of the academic literature too, and would invite others to do the same. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, um, I appreciate that. And I, I, what I'll do is I'll include the links to those sources in the show notes so that people can also be engaging in those sources if they choose to, and they'll have easy access to those books and those works. Um, so Tori, as we conclude our time together, I know that you're an amazing um, part of, of my network, my community, and how can folks add you to their network? How can they connect with you? Oh, yeah. Um, they can call me. <laughs> I probably don't want my phone distributed on something that I don't know what kind of nasty grams I might get back. But um, most of what I'm not on social media as much as I should be. I'm, I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I've got email. So I can share all of that with you. But I would love to connect with people and hear their stories because I do think this narrative of what a traditional student affairs person is or should be is changing and has to change. So yeah, I would love to talk with folks about how that's happening for them or those they know or whatnot. So what I'll do is I'll include your Twitter and your LinkedIn information in the show notes so that people can click on that and link. Um, directly cool. to you. And Great. I encourage people listening to this podcast to connect with Tori and um, send her those positive grams, <laughs> those <laughs> inspirational grams. Um, Not that she doesn't belong in higher ed that sometimes appears in some of my teaching evals because I swore once. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if, if you get any of those nasty grams, I think that folks are truly didn't listen then to what you shared throughout <laughs> the episode and they're only proving your point, not rebutting mm. it. <laughs> 
So, Tori, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I know that as we conclude each episode, I like to close out with an inspirational quote to send people back out into the world. And today, I'm so glad that you came, um, you found a quote. Can you be the one that reads that for us today? Yeah, sure. Um, So this is, uh, well, I'll read the quote. The ideal is to promote the transformation of rebellious consciousness into revolutionary consciousness to be radical without becoming sectarian, to be strategic without becoming cynical, to be skillful without becoming opportunistic, and to be ethical without becoming puritanical. It's from Paulo Freire um, in the text letters to Christina. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Tori. To all those listening in, thank you so much for all that you do. I truly appreciate you. Stay resilient. Are you looking for ways to support the Resilient Campus podcast and the work that we're doing to build and bridge campus social movements? Join our online Patreon community of other social justice educators like yourself to develop connections, get guidance and resources from other folks engaged in this work, and get access to bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes footage that is only available to our Patreon community members. For more information, visit patreon.com forward slash resilient campus. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash resilient campus. Thanks so much for tuning in. Head on over to iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on a single episode.